The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today I'm very excited to be speaking with Dan Habib, an award-winning filmmaker who's got a new project coming out, a new documentary and a new thing, and he's going to tell you all about. And uh, welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Aki. It's a pleasure to be with you. I got to tell you, I got such a thrill out of reading about you online with the different films you made and what got you into it and everything. And I, I can't wait to share it with our, uh, our different brains audience because you get it. You get, you get this whole deal, don't you? <laughs> well, I think uh, you can appreciate that I get it only because my son Samuel has taught me everything I know pretty much. I think many of us as parents, uh, you know, our kids are the ones that really bring us into a world that we never quite expected to be in. So that's, yeah, if I get it, it's because of Samuel. Yeah, ditto over here too. Uh, tell us, uh, introduce yourself to our audience. They haven't met you before, although a lot of them have seen you on all the national media you've been on, but introduce yourself. Sure. So, um, well, I was a photojournalist actually for about 20 years before I got into filmmaking. So professionally, filmmaking is relatively new for me. I've been doing it about 10 years. Um, and it wasn't a, a career path I had ever expected to take. You know, my wife and I moved to New Hampshire almost 30 years ago uh, to do, I was doing newspaper work, doing a lot of freelance documentary work. And I would do stories on migrant workers, on welfare reform. I covered six New Hampshire presidential primaries. You may know that New wow. Hampshire is a big uh, political state. Um, and I loved my work as a photojournalist. But when we had our son Samuel, which was uh, almost 17 years ago now, actually almost 18 years ago, um, life changed pretty rapidly because we determined that he had cerebral palsy about uh, five or six months into his life. And also an underlying health condition called mitochondrial disorder, which caused a lot of underlying health fragility, you know, seizure disorders, things like that. So as I'm sure a lot of your audience can appreciate, when, you're, when you realize that your child has a disability, many things change in your life. Uh, and it took a few years, but um, there was one point in my life when Samuel actually got very sick. He got pneumonia from a tonsillectomy. He had aspirated some blood and things didn't go so well. And it was a very difficult moment for us. He was about three and a half and he was in critical condition for about two weeks. And during that time, his neurologist, who was also the attending in the ICU, said to me, you know, you're a photojournalist. He'd gotten to know us. Have you ever thought of telling the story of what it's like to be a parent of a child with a disability? And I said, not really. But he said, you know, it would be a powerful story for you to tell. And I started bringing my camera to the hospital just to honestly burn off some of the stress I was feeling, uh, the anxiety you can appreciate we were feeling at that point. I started taking some pictures in the hospital, didn't really know where it would go. But once Samuel thankfully stabilized, got out of the hospital, got back to health, um, I said, you know, maybe I should pursue this. So I started doing a documentary still essay on Samuel, which, which then I realized, you know, if I really want to reach young people, video is the currency of young people these days. And so I decided to, to shift to video. Yeah. So anyway, that led me down the path of, of creating the film, including Samuel, which took me about three years to make while I was still director of photography at the newspaper. Uh, once that came out in 2008, about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to devote myself full time to filmmaking. And from that point on, I've just been doing documentary film work here based at the University of New Hampshire Institute on Disability. Um, and I've been doing that full time for the last 10 years. 
What a great story. Now, um, many in our audience are ignorant of cerebral palsy because it doesn't get a lot of the press that some of the other highlighted neurodiversities do. Why don't you tell us about cerebral palsy? Right. Well, you know, the way I describe it to your audience would be the way I describe it to anybody that asks about Samuel's disability, which is that he has some trouble connecting his brain to his muscles. You know, his, his brain just doesn't direct his muscles very efficiently. And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. I think there's a conception that cerebral palsy is inherently a birth injury. But in, in actually the majority of cases, it's not a birth injury. Um, people think it's like an oxygen deprivation at birth. But in many, many cases, it's a genetic disorder. It's a mitochondrial disorder, metabolic disorder, which all means that's at the cellular level, something is going wrong in the processing. You know, there's something if there's something that's not quite clicking. And so um, in those situations, that can cause a brain injury in utero, which is what happened with Samuel. And it can have a lot of complications. In Samuel's case, it did create create such difficulty with him navigating his muscular functions that he uses a wheelchair, he has trouble speaking, and he uses a communication device. But, you know, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk more about this. I want your viewers to know Samuel's also uh, almost always on the honor roll. He's a high school senior. He's looking forward to going to college. He's going to the homecoming dance Saturday night. He's got a date. He's playing three sports. He's, uh, he does a lot of public presenting. He's a filmmaker. So there's, there's so many. I don't want to, you know, shoe, shoebox or, or shoehorn Samuel into this, into this, you know, mindset of he's just a disability. He's obviously, like uh, you appreciate, has so many more things going on. Well, it's well said. And, you know, uh, back, back in the old days, uh, when I was uh, becoming an orthopedic surgeon, one of the best years I spent was a whole year at what used to be called the Shriners Hospital for Crippled Children in Springfield, Massachusetts. For that whole year, I lived with the kids. Uh, I stayed in the hospital, uh, became part of them. And uh, we uh, just had a great experience. And what I started to see then that I think much more so now is how everything overlaps all the systems overlap and everything. And the basic science now is moving more and more toward, as you say, the cellular mitochondrial level. And uh, in addition to that, I think when the, the final history is written, that all stuff is going to evolve from the mitochondrial level, from the autoimmune system, what we call infections, which are probably really uh, immune phenomenon, And I think great strides are being made now. One of the overlaps in cerebral palsy uh, is the rubella and other, you know, other uh, diseases like that. Um, How has the, from your point of view, how has the approach to cerebral palsy changed in the past 17 years? Wow, you know, that's interesting. I, I honestly haven't seen a tremendous number of changes, I, you know, for better or for worse. I, I think that what is probably changing the fastest, as you can appreciate, is our understanding of the genetic makeup of human beings and the fact that they're diagnosing things that they couldn't diagnose before. So, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, Samuel, they probably would have just thought he must have had some kind of birth injury. They, they would not have been able to do the diagnostic work to know that he has a mitochondrial disorder. The benefit to knowing that is that his doctor has been able to target his medicine and not just his like um, prescription meds, but even over-the-counter vitamins. They, he, he, he takes all these um, 
uh, vitamins and, and supplements that, that turbocharge the mitochondrial process. And our neurologist has prescribed those because he's really understood, you know, the nuances of the mitochondrial process. I think, you know, I mean, honestly, I think that we, of course, focus a lot on, on keeping Samuel healthy and getting him the right medicine and treatment and therapies. But I think as much or more of our life is focused on disability rights, inclusive education, and just opportunities for him to be successful and completely integrated into all aspects of our society um, without having to minimize any aspect of his disability, but totally accepting his disability for where he is and and working more on society <laughs> and, you know, working to, to fix society more than we're, much more than we're fixing Samuel. And then right now we're in the middle of uh, uh, National uh, Disability Employment Month uh, That's now. Right. Um, and employment, as Temple Grandin said, that's where the rubber meets the road. You know, that's... right? Exactly. And we're and we're very focused on that for Samuel. I mean, he, you know, I, I've been fortunate to do a lot of film work around the country, some of which looks at transition issues for kids transitioning from high school to college and career, and understand what some of the best practices are, what some of the promising approaches are. And one of the things they say is, if a kid has some paid work experience in high school, a kid with a disability, they're much more likely to achieve integrated employment as an adult. If they have some household chores, they're much more likely to achieve that. If they have internships and mentorships, so you can believe that we're doing all those things, including household chores (laughs) for Samuel. Tell us what it was like. You had the honor and privilege and did such good work uh, when President Obama appointed you to the President's Committee for People with Disabilities. Tell us what that was like. Sure. And I'm still on that committee, actually, although we have not met under the new administration. We'll see how that goes. You know, you never know. Uh, but we it's called the President's Committee for People with Intellectual Disabilities, specifically. Uh, it's been a fascinating and I think a very important project. You know, we we meet several times a year in Washington. It's not a it's not a job. It's really more of a volunteer you know, uh, role. But it, it can be quite com- demanding at times because we're charged with basically with every year writing a report to the president recommending what needs to happen in the world of disability to keep things moving forward, to keep creating opportunities in education and employment and community life for people of all abilities and disabilities. So we did, for instance, one report that was just on technology access and how can we continue to advance technological access, uh, both both kind of um, specialized technology for people just with disabilities, but also access to mainstream technology, whether it's iPhones or computers or transportation. Um, So that was one report. We did another report uh, looking at pathways to inclusive lives through education, through employment, through, you know, um, uh, having self-determination when it comes to guardianship issues, things like that. So so it's been powerful. You know, I can't honestly have never met the president in that capacity. He wasn't spending time with us. I don't know that I'll meet President Trump in that capacity. But what we did see was the reports that were issued actually had some policy impact. We saw things happening at the federal level that were, were came out of these reports. And in fact, the ABLE Act, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a, it's a well-known uh, policy that came into, into, into reality the last couple of years that allows people with disabilities to save up to $100,000 without affecting their benefits. So it's a really important policy change that has occurred because in the past, if you earned even five, ten thousand $10,000, you could lose your Social Security money, you know, and so there was no incentive to work and no opportunities. That ABLE Act drew, uh, grew out of a previous report from the Presidential Committee. Who are some of the other champions that you work alongside with in general? Who are some of your heroes in the whole movement? 
I've got some heroes for sure. I mean, one of my most current heroes and current friends is a woman named Judy Human, Judith Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N. She is a longtime disability rights advocate. Um, she was in Berkeley during the really intense times when they were trying to get uh, Section 504 passed, which is really important legislation. She helped work on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, she's been involved in almost every major piece of legislation. She ran... Um, the education policy under under I think she was under President Clinton. So and she one of the cool things is that she and I have become friendly and I've met you know talked to her at conferences. And so when it came time for Samuel to do his final project for sophomore year and it had to be a project about a civil rights movement, she agreed to Skype with him for an hour and do an interview. So he did a fabulous film that if, if your viewers are interested, just go to uh, YouTube and just Google Samuel Habib. Judith Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N, and it'll pop up. It's free. And it's it's like a short history of the disability rights movement. And it's Samuel interviewing her on Skype, and it's all video uh, taped. He, he created it. He put the music in. He put the vote videos in. So so she's really important. I would also say Bob Williams is a very uh, longtime serving um, U.S. federal government official in a lot of different departments. And I got a chance to interview him about 10 years ago, uh, maybe even longer, when I was starting, including Samuel, and when Samuel was very young. And I said, listen, as the parent of a child with a disability, what's the best advice you can give me? And Bob is a man who can't speak, uses a communication device, but was basically Clinton's right first right hand person for disability policy. And he said, just give him choices at every step of the way, you know, create self-determination, foster self-determination all the time. And that was very powerful advice. And, and my wife and I have taken that to heart. So those are a couple of people. I mean, there's famous people like Ed Roberts, obviously Temple Grandin, you know, is fantastic. You know, and then there are a lot of young people who are up and coming in the movement um, who are doing incredible work. I could throw out lots of names, but there's a whole new generation of disability rights leaders that I'm really excited about. What bit of advice would you have? Someone in our audience has a child with cerebral palsy. What advice would you give them? Well, there's so many directions to go with that. I mean, all I can say is that for us, the, you know, a couple of things have really guided my wife and I and my family in this journey of the last 18 years. One is to come up with a vision for your child. That's a very um, high vision, high expectations for what you think and what you know they can achieve. It doesn't mean it's not going to be a bumpy road. It doesn't mean they'll achieve every aspect of that vision. But for us, the vision was that Samuel would feel like he belonged. You know, he would feel like he belonged in our family, in our neighborhood, in our community, and certainly in our public school. In fact, I couldn't imagine him feeling like he belonged unless he felt like he belonged in our own local public school. So that's why we fought and advocated so hard for inclusive education. We're fortunate that our district is generally quite inclusive and Samuel's always been in regular classes. And I've never for one second of my life regretted that we have pushed hard and that he has been in general education classes, even though at times it's challenging, you know, academically, like it is for many kids. At times, logistically, there's a lot of things we need to figure out. It has connected him to the community. It has created an amazing number of friendships. It's exposed him to a really high level of educational discourse. So I think that's critical. I think, you know, obviously it all starts with health. I mean, you have to focus on health. You have to have doctors and specialists that you trust. And once you find that physical therapist or occupational therapist or speech therapist that you believe in and that you really feel is going to do great work on behalf of your child, do not let go of them. Hold on and grab their ankles and don't let them go anywhere. Uh, you know, and, and I think that's really important, building a network around. And then, and then I think, you know, I really do think also that 
we learned, we had to learn that we couldn't spend our whole life trying to fix Samuel. You know, that is not what it's about. We want to keep him healthy, but we have come fully to accept his disability and he accepts his disability. In fact, he embraces his disability at this point. I have asked him many times since he was seven or eight years old, Samuel, if you could just get rid of your cerebral palsy, would you? And he always says, no, it is now a part of his identity. Just like if if, a, if you ask that same thing to a black person or a person who might be gay or have a different sexual orientation, they would say, this is just who I am. I can't imagine myself not being this way, even though it's hard sometimes to be in a, in a minority group that can be discriminated against, like the ones I mentioned. It's also a full part of your identity. And, and for Samuel, he's very proud of his identity as a person with a disability. He wishes he didn't have all his doctor's appointments and blood draws. He would get rid of those in a second. But he but he's accepted who he is. And I think that's something that the parents can model from a very early age to accept the child for who they are and where they are. Since you've become involved, how has the neurodiversity movement changed? Well, you know, it's I'll be honest, it's not what I would consider an area of my expertise, but what I would say from my own experience is I'm, I'm pretty well connected to groups like ASAN, Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, um, Autism Society of America. And, you know, again, it's not all about autism, but I think a lot of the leadership within the neurodiversity movement comes from, from uh, the autist, autistic people and autistic groups. Um, and I, I think I've seen, similar to what I've seen in Samuel's orbit, a push to just accept people for who they are. And that people of all different, um, you know, areas of neurodiversity, all types of ways of thinking, all types of ways of experiencing the world, all types of ways of processing the world, have a place in our society, have a place in the workplace, have a place in an education. We ha still have a tremendous amount of work to do, tremendous amount of work. I mean, the, the rates of employment are still way too low. But I've seen increasingly more and more articles, movies, um, you know, that show that this is part of our natural diversity. And I think that's what we really need to see this as. Is, is disability, whether it's neurological disability, physical disability, um, other disabilities, our mental health disabilities are part of our diversity and, and should be embraced as such. Not and, and every effort should not be made just focused on fixing people. It should be made on changing the world to make it a more inclusive and accepting place for the diversity that uh, of disability. Yeah, why don't you tell our audience now how they get a hold of you, how they look at all your projects. Let's go through sure. the whole gamut. Yeah. Well, the easiest way is just go to danhabibfilms.org. That's my, that's a URL, danhabib, D-A-N-H-A-B-I-B films.org. That's got a list of all my projects and links to all my projects. Um, and, and I would say the best way to get in touch with me now or to be up to date on what's going to be happening is go to the, the website for my current film, intelligentlives.org. And just, you can contact me there directly through email. You can also um, just sign up for our e-newsletter, which comes out, you know, maybe every few weeks or a month, we send out some updates to people. We don't sell the list or anything like that. Well, Dan Habib, thank you so much for being here for another episode of Exploring Different Brains. We hope to have you back very soon because you are just full of great intellect, great messaging, and great work. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains, Inc. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.org.